Let's read Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Church, this is the word of the Lord to us. Dig deep into it, read it, consider it, and let's discuss it. Our passage today begins with a command. What is that command? Behold. It says, Behold. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, Look. Behold. And behold is... It's very, very strong and serious language. When the Bible says behold, it means look at that and stop looking at everything else. God through Isaiah is calling us to pay attention to God's servant. From Isaiah chapter 40 to like chapter 55, somewhere in there, somewhere in the 50s, Over and over and over again, we read about a servant. And sometimes that servant is the nation of Israel and the people of God in that day. And in talk about that servant, there is sometimes rebuke, sometimes there's encouragement. We learn a lot about the nation of Israel as God calls that group of people his servant. But there's four passages in particular. And this is one of the four. This is the first one of the four. Where when it talks, when Isaiah is talking servant, he's talking about the true servant. He's talking about the great servant. He's talking about the coming servant who the people of God in his day was supposed to be a picture of or an image of. The people of God are always to point to the true God. Well, God's servant Israel, the the nation of Israel was supposed 
to be a picture to the world of the true servant who was to come, and that is the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ Himself. So Isaiah is calling God's people that of that day to look forward to the perfect servant, the perfect son, the one who is coming. And remember, as I speak like that, this was prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. So behold, my servant. And we notice as we read verse 1, there is a lot of Trinitarian activity. The Bible teaches us that God exists as a Trinitarian, a Trinitarian God. He is three persons, but yet one God. He is not three gods, and He is not one person, but He is three persons, and He is one God. And in verse 1, we see the Father speaking of the Son, and we see the Father sending the Spirit to the Son. Yahweh, or the Father, I believe it is right to say, says, I uphold my servant. God says that Jesus Christ is my chosen. God says that His servant Jesus is one in whom my soul delights. Then God says, I put my spirit on Jesus. I recall Jesus' baptism as I read verse 1. Jesus went down into the water. He comes up and the Father sends the Spirit of God upon the Son. And then God says in a voice for all to hear, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see? We, we got the Spirit coming down, which it says in verse 1. But then we see the pleasure of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, when He says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And this servant... And Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, is one who brings perfect and ultimate pleasure to the God who sent him. So the Spirit empowers this servant for a mission. What is the mission of the servant? We see that at the end of verse 1. He will bring justice... To the nations. He will bring justice to the nations. He's not just bringing justice to his favorite people, but the servant is for all nations. He is a worldwide servant, a worldwide savior. We saw that so clearly as we explored Acts 8 through 15. For most of the year that, you know, leading up to this point. But he is a servant to bring justice to the nations. And he doesn't, he's not like the pro-life movement that just brings partial justice and just works to save some people, but not all people. But he is working to bring full justice. He is working to bring complete justice to all of his creation. I want to tell y'all something. God doesn't leave anybody out. Did you know that? God doesn't leave anybody out. He is working to conquer all evil. And I take great comfort in that. 
So what does justice look like? What does verses 2 and 3 mean about a, a bruised reed, a faintly burning wick? You know, Jesus, he's not going to cry or lift up his voice, is he? It says. And verses 2 and 3 and 4, you know, it, it's, there's some symbolism and some imagery there. And I take great comfort in knowing what this means because in the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us exactly what this means. You all, the New Testament is constantly fulfilling the Old Testament. And it's constantly quoting to us the Old Testament and also explaining to us the meaning of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, these first four verses are quoted in, in, in full in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew tells us, Jesus doesn't say it, but Matthew understands it and he teaches us this. Matthew tells us that Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4 are fulfilled in Jesus. And if we look at what Matthew says, if we look at the context of Matthew chapter 12, we're going to learn what this means. So in Matthew 12, you don't have to turn there, but, but I'm going to be, I'm only going to read from Isaiah 42, but you've got to know it's almost exactly word for word. But in our passage today, it says that Jesus will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That was troubling to me when I was considering that being about Jesus because wasn't Jesus the one who turned over tables? Didn't he look straight into the eyes of lots of religious leaders and tell them, you guys are going straight to hell? Yeah, he caused a ruckus. He, he, Jerusalem was a crazy place when he was there and this happened in many other places too. So, how is this about Jesus? Well, there were certainly times where Jesus spoke publicly. There were certainly times where he did lift his voice. But you all, there was a large portion of Jesus's ministry where he wasn't super duper loud. He was dealing with small groups of people in a very close setting. And he wasn't, there was a time in his ministry, particularly those first couple years, where he wasn't going after his enemies. He wasn't pointing out those who opposed him. He was mainly just dealing with those who were open to him and welcome to him. And in Matthew chapter 12 and in Isaiah 42 verse 2, when it says he doesn't lift up his voice, it's a reference to those early seasons of ministry. So earlier in Matthew 12, before this is quoted, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees did not like that. And it's the first time that the Bible says that they went out and conspired together. The Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, they went out and they made a plan to destroy Jesus. And you know, that was no secret to Jesus, was it? And Matthew writes that Jesus was aware of this and he withdrew from them and from that place. They were putting their boxing gloves on. Jesus knew all about it. 
And Jesus did not put his boxing gloves on, but he just went to the next place. You all, in Jesus' perfect wisdom, and and I want this in my own life. I want this in all of our lives, but I I pray this for me often. In Jesus' perfect wisdom, he knew which battles to fight and which ones to draw from. If you study world history, even World War II, you'll notice that some of the different nations had to fight on two or three different fronts. And whenever an army, whenever a nation has to fight here and there, their attention is divided. And it is very, very difficult. Now, Jesus' attention is never divided because his attention is limitless and infinite in every way. He hears and knows all that takes place. But Jesus in his flesh was only in one place at one time. And you and I, like Jesus, we are in our flesh. We are limited by our physical body and just our our limited ability to, to know things and understand things. You all, I pray that God would give us his perfect wisdom and that we as individuals and also as a church would know which battles to fight and which ones to withdraw from. So for the situation in Matthew chapter 12, It was not yet his time to bring an end to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But that certainly did happen later on. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, shortly before his death, he became very, very clear about how he felt about their evil and their wickedness and their life and their ministry. Then almost 40 years after Jesus died, God brought the end of an age of Jewish history where he brought the temple coming down. God sent the Roman Empire into Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt. It has never been rebuilt, and I don't believe it will be rebuilt again. We get to verse 3, and we see more about the ministry of Jesus. And we need to look at this so, so, so very closely and consider what this means. For our ministry. As we look at verse 2. I'm sorry. As we look at verse 3. I want you to think about. Where you were. When you became a Christian. I want you to consider. All that you had been through. Before you became a Christian. And I want you to also. Just kind of reflect on your own life. Presently. And the level of suffering. And pain that you have. Now, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. Y'all know me. I got pigs and goats running all over my property. I got one pig especially who likes to run over my property. It likes to do all of it at one time. But I, I got him in a spot. And what do pigs and goats and animals do? They trample it down, don't they? They destroy the vegetation that is present. And so if the pig's goat's been there for a few days or a week or two, you can look, and there's this one stray stem still sticking up. You know, it's not particularly something they enjoy eating, so it's just there. But it's getting beat up and knocked around as they run by it and as they like to wrestle with each other and play with each other, but somehow it's still standing. 
You know, I think there's a lot of people in our world that fit that description. They've been beat down. They've been run over. They've been oppressed. They've been attacked. They've been abused. They've been taken advantage of. They are a bruised reed. They are not whole. They are not healthy. They are insecure. They are dysfunctional. They are ill. They are disabled. And I don't mean that in a physical sense. There's all kinds of problems. There's nothing attractive or beautiful or wonderful or useful about them. But this servant, Jesus Christ, will bring restoration and wholeness to the bruised reed. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. For that person that just struggling, they're at the end of the rope, they're, they're that last little bit, and the, the flame, the light is about to go out. There's not much more oil, or there's not much more wax to keep fueling that flame. They have no hope. They feel like they're at the bottom. And Jesus Christ says, I'm not going to hurt or destroy the faintly burning wick. But the end of verse 3, it says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. You all, Jesus will bring forth justice by renewing and restoring all that sin has destroyed. Jesus has, is, and will faithfully bring forth justice by renewing all that sin has broken and destroyed. Y'all still got sin in your own life, right? God's renewed some things for you. He's not finished yet, church. The chaos in your soul, the brokenness in your neighborhood and in your household, Jesus is renewing it. Jesus is the servant of God. And God is restoring our souls. He is making all things new. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not quench that little tiny bit of light. But He will give you fuel for His fire inside of you. And the fire will grow. And the light of Christ in you will increase as He restores the brokenness. As He heals the dysfunction. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus goes throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. He saw the crowds and He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus sees people that are harassed and helpless, He has compassion on them. We serve a compassionate Savior. Some of y'all ain't very compassionate. I'm right there with you. I have a hard time sometimes. In our ministry, 
Let us show forth the compassion of Christ upon the harassed and helpless. No one is too far gone. Jesus will faithfully bring forth justice to the harassed and helpless. Jesus is making things right. How many things has, how many wrong things in your life has he made right? Y'all, he's still doing it in you. And he wants to do everything he's done in you and a lot of the people that you know. He is restoring all that has been broken by sin. I told you Isaiah 42 is connected to Matthew 12. Well, right before Matthew quotes Isaiah, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Right after Matthew quotes Isaiah, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Biblical justice brings renewal and restoration to those who have been overcome by the evil of others and by the brokenness of sin in our world. And as Isaiah commands us, I speak to you. Behold, look at this Jesus. Look at God's servant who is making all things new. So we get to verse 4. And it tells us Jesus is not going to grow faint or be discouraged. All right, so look at verse 4. You see that word discouraged? It's the same Hebrew word as the bruised reed in verse 3. See in verse 3 it says, a bruised reed he will not break. That word bruise is the same Hebrew word found in verse 4 translated discouraged. You all, Jesus is not going to become like the bruised reed. People are often overcome by the damage and effects of sin. People are often hurt and harmed and broken because of the abuse and the oppression of other people. Jesus, with the exception of his crucifixion, he is not the bruised reed. Y'all, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, isn't he? And I want to tell you, he looks at our world and he sees the brokenness in it. And Jesus is not growing faint or discouraged right now. Did y'all know that? Jesus is not surprised by the evil running amok. But Jesus is in perfect obedience to his Father now as he was when he was alive. And he's trusting his Father to send him at exactly the right time to, make, to finish making all things right. It's easy to lose hope in our wicked world, church. But I want to tell you, our Savior is not growing faint. He is not discouraged. And this, and, and, and that will never happen until, as verse 4 says, he has established justice in the earth. Church, don't lose hope. Y'all, it's been 2,000 years. We live in a Christian culture that makes us think Jesus is coming back next week. Actually, I saw a clip of a guy on Facebook this week. He swears up and down the Bible says that Jesus is coming back in 2026. And really, the man's just a fool who doesn't understand his Bible. You all, we live in a Christian culture. We've been conditioned to think that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. That absolutely might happen. But don't put your hope in that. Are you going to be destroyed or upset if you find yourself 10 years from now and he's not back yet? It could happen. 
But I want to tell you, we just don't know. I don't want you to grow faint. I don't want you to grow weary with our God because He's not moving on your timetable. He's got it all planned out. He's going to do it just right and He's going to do it perfectly. So we get to verse 5. And God speaks. And He says, I created the heavens. I stretched them out. Spread out the earth and what comes from it. I give breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Right here, Yahweh is saying He's created this, all this world and, and He is sustaining it. But He has something to say to His servant. He has something to say to Jesus. Keep in mind, the Father is speaking to the Son. Verse 6, He says, I have called you in righteousness. You all, this servant... This Son of God is perfect in every way. Not only will He not grow faint and He will not be discouraged, but He is perfect in every way. Verse 6, God says to the servant, I will take you by the hand and keep you. Now God leads the servant. God protects the servant. God and Jesus are on the same page every time. And then He says, I will give you as a covenant... For the people. I, I, we could spend all day on the word covenant if we want to. But I just want to say this. The prophet Jeremiah expanded on this idea of covenant in a very helpful way. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, God says that He had a covenant with the people, but the people broke it. They broke the covenant. But God God goes on to say about this covenant. Well, He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah. And then He says, I'm going to put My law within My people. I'm going to write it on their hearts. Y'all, that's the new covenant. God did not write things on the hearts of people in the old covenant before Jesus came. Jeremiah goes on to say, God goes on to say through Jeremiah, I will be their God, they will be My people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All throughout the Old Testament, God is speaking of a new covenant. The night that Jesus was arrested, the day before Jesus died, he's at the table eating Passover. And he holds up the cup, and he, or I'm sorry, he holds up the bread, he says, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Then he holds up the cup, and he says, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So in Isaiah 42, verse 6, God says to Jesus, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And at the end of verse 6, it says to this, God says to this servant that you are a light to the nations. Did not Jesus say, I am the light of the world? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does God bring light into our life? See, yes, 
He's made a covenant with us and now He is our light. We've been called out of darkness and then to His light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You, you're a priesthood, alright? You have incredible religious authority and access to God. And you're royalty because you are a son of the King. Peter goes on to say, you are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. God, if God has grabbed hold of you, he possesses you. You are his. You belong to him. And all this happened so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did God call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Yes, he did. You're leaving the darkness of sin and you're running into the light of God. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 6. That the servant is a light for the nations. Is he your light? Can he be the light for an entire nation? Yes, he's your light. And yes, he can be the light for an entire nation. And, and look at the connection between verses 6 and 7. There's talk of light from God. And verse 7 shows us what he does with that light. He opens the eyes that are blind. He brings prisoners from the dungeon. Is a dungeon a bright place? It's not. No, it's not. Verse 7. He brings from the prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus healed blind people, y'all? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. You all, he sets the captives free. He brings prisoners out of the dungeon. And he brings us into his own marvelous light. You all, this is fulfilled in the gospel. If you're a Christian, you've believed the gospel. This is fulfilled as, the gospel, as we believe it and as the gospel Transforms us. Our salvation is a fulfillment of what we see happening in Isaiah 42. Jesus, God's servant, has brought light to you and rescued you from the darkness of sin and death. And he's brought you into his own light. I want to say this. We have prison and dungeon here in verse 7. This is not a reference to biblical justice does not demand that we just let everyone in prison go. Okay, there are people in our world today in church behind pulpits, just like the one I'm standing behind, that will read this verse and they will tell you, see, we just need to let all the prisoners who've committed crimes go. And I say, no, that is not what this verse is saying. And why do I say that? Because I can point you to three dozen other verses in the Bible that says that's not okay with God. This is a reference to the prison of our sin I also believe it's a reference to the oppression that more powerful people bring on others. A huge part of biblical justice is helping people who have been taken advantage of by others. It has to do with defending the weak and the needy. Our passage today has nothing to do with criminals who were rightly and justly thrown into prison. But biblical justice demands that the innocent go free and the guilty receive what they deserve. Now, 
there's oppressed people in our world, right? We've got a, a, a sex slavery industry in our world. We've got abortion that is still legal despite... I, I'm knocking on the pro-life movement today. I'm going to keep right on. The pro-life movement will tell you that it's illegal in some states to have an abortion. Well, they are wrong. It is perfectly legal in all 50 states to have an abortion if you do it a particular way. It happens in all 50 states. It's perfectly legal. There's not a single state in our nation that offers equal protection to all preborn people. But you all, when we're talking about biblical justice, we're talking about those who can't defend themselves. We're talking about those who can't speak up. We're talking about those who don't have a voice. We're talking about the abused. We're talking about orphans. We're talking about the weak and the needy. Psalm 72 says that God delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Psalm 103 verse 6 tells us the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And I tell you, when I read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, it came up in our discussion today. Someone else brought it up. I didn't even bring it up this time. Someone else did. The Bible says to stop oppression. There's a command from God to His people to stop oppression. God wants to bring restoration and healing and wholeness and justice to our world through us. Now, I'm talking a lot about victims today. I want you to be on guard against something that is being pushed in our culture. There are many. You see this in mainstream media and our favorite politicians. I say favorite uh, sarcastically if you didn't notice. But there are many playing the victim card today and they want others to pay for their sins. There are many who have a rough and horrible life today who have gotten to that point because of decisions they've made themselves. And we have a powerful political engine and we have a powerful media who wants them to think that all of their problems are someone else's fault. There's also forces in our world today that want others to pay for the sins of their great, 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 great grandparents. So what my ancestors did two and three and four hundred years ago, there's people in our world saying today that I should pay for their sins. And I say that has absolutely nothing to do with justice at all. You all, this type of talk, this type of dynamic, this talk, type of life in our culture, it has to do with laziness, entitlement, deception, and wickedness. I'm not talking about what the social justice movement is talking about. I'm talking about biblical justice, where those who are truly oppressed and where those who are truly victims... At the hand of someone else. Um, I, I'm talking about those people being reached out to and those people being served. And I want to tell you, as I proclaim this Savior, as I proclaim Jesus Christ bringing justice to the nations, I want to tell you that our federal government is setting themselves up to be a Savior that sets the captives free. If you listen to our politicians, the, the Republicans have their own brand, but the Democrats have one that is far worse. They are setting themselves up to be the Savior. It's almost like a cult. You listen to the language that they use to talk about themselves, especially when they're running for election. They're going to save you from every problem out there. And I tell you, it's a counterfeit and it's a scam. Joe Biden is not bringing light to our nation. 
Y'all, this week, maybe it was last week, he redefined marriage legally. He is promoting darkness as he does this. He is also pouring fuel on the fire of racism in our nation. He is raising the flag of idolatry as he does everything in his own power to make sure that people can terminate a pregnancy and kill their child. He is promoting lawlessness. He is promoting human autonomy. And he spits in the face of God and and all of his buddies up there do too. He is not bringing justice to our nation. He is not the Savior. I don't have to tell you all that. I know you know that. But I know you're hearing this from other people, and it's hard to know what to do with it when you're hearing it from other people. So that's why I'm going down this road. Our government has rejected biblical law as the standard, and now man's own version, people's own version of righteousness is what's being promoted. And man's righteousness is unrighteousness. Man's light is darkness. Man's righteousness is unrighteousness, and man's light is darkness. This wickedness that we see in our government is the very thing that Christ has come to undo. This evil is exactly what he is in the process of conquering. Church, be aware of counterfeit saviors. Be aware of counterfeit religions. Be aware of those who claim to, who proclaim, I'm sorry, beware of those who claim to work to bring liberty and justice for all while neglecting the righteous and the just commands of God. Church, we are transitioning from Advent to Christmas. This Advent season begins four Sundays before December 25th. And as we anticipate all that takes place next weekend, I want us to consider two Christmas songs. And we'll sing these before we go today. Just about every good Christmas song, we see an element of justice and peace in it. But our passage today has proclaimed clearly that Jesus is bringing justice to the nations. And we see that he has to rule and reign to do that. Hark the herald angels sing in verse 1. The angels sing glory to the newborn king. You all, Jesus can bring justice to the nations because he is the king. Because he is the king of kings. Because he is the Lord of lords. So anytime you see reference to Jesus as king or to God's kingdom in any of our songs, and particularly in our Christmas songs that we'll sing these today and these next two Sundays, I want you to know it's talking about the authority of that Jesus possesses to make all these wrong things right. In verse 1, a heart the herald angels sing, it goes on to say, peace on earth. There's the justice, y'all. Justice establishes peace. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's justice also. God is reconciling sinners to himself. A pure and holy God takes a sinful person, sends Jesus, and Jesus achieves righteousness Jesus merits a relationship with God, and then God takes that and gives it to the sinner. And then Jesus takes all that the sinner deserves, and justice is done. All evil is punished. You all, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful what? All ye nations, 
rise, join the triumph of the skies. Verse 3, Hark the herald angels sing, it says, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. As we sing these songs today and next week and the week after, consider how God in Christ is making all things new. The song, O Holy Night, I love it, y'all. I love it. Verse 1, it says, Yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It's a reference to this new life that we have in Christ and this new thing that God is doing in the world today. It's a new thing He's been doing for 2,000 years. He's making the old new. And in verse 3 of O Holy Night, He says this, Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Listen to this, y'all. Chains shall He break. This newborn baby, this King Jesus Christ that we celebrate, we sing of Him and we say, Chains shall He break. For the slave is our brother. And in His name, all oppression shall cease. Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love. And His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break. For the slave is our brother. And in His name, all oppression shall cease. This song, and all of our songs, is about this servant in Isaiah 42. And God says to us today, Behold and look at Jesus.